0: That's the basic instinct. It's human. It's, it's animalistic. We can't escape from that. We are tribal people. We want to be part of something. So as that need arises in adulthood, we just need to become aware of what's the layers over it, what's protecting that from being hurt again, and slowly and carefully just disentangling the stories, the limiting beliefs, the fears, the lies that we talk on, and the biggest thing the story that we've made it justifiable.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us. I am your host, Behavioral Coach Jeffrey Bisek, and that was today's guest, Leah Marshall Marmula. We're all on the journey to discover the light inside, that beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. This is episode number 100, Human Nature. It's the one constant throughout our being, within our nature, the desire to seek connection with others. Our relationships enriching our sense of aliveness. it is for this reason we seek loving, supporting, and nurturing bonds with others. In fact, according to social psychologist Roy Baumeister, the need to belong is one of the main forces driving us as individuals. After all, belonging is a crucial element in forming a sense of closeness and intimacy throughout our lives, and from an evolutionary perspective, cultivating strong relationships has an endless array of advantages throughout our being, yet our relationships with others are rarely perfect and problem-free. Today we explore the essential role our attachment styles play in forming effective relationships, both with ourselves and others, as we join this discussion with our guest, Leah Marshall Marmula. Tune in to discover your attachment style and why it matters on this episode of The Light Inside. Our guest, Leah Marshall Marmula, is supporting others in discovering the essential role psychosocial dynamics play throughout their lives, helping them engage a deep dive into the subconsciousness while disentangling the emotional attachments, often leaving them feeling stuck and unable to grow throughout life. I'm thrilled to share this insightful conversation with you, our listening community, as Leah and I explore how our attachment styles guide and inform nearly every relationship we form throughout life, especially the one with yourself. Bringing our focus in on developing a secure attachment style and why it should matter to you. Attachment styles are a hot topic and for good reason. A person's attachment style, developed in childhood, can affect everything from how they connect with their inner self, what qualities they look for in a partner, and how they relate to the world around them. As adults, those who are securely attached tend to have trusting, long-term relationships. Other key characteristics of securely attached individuals include having high self-esteem, enjoying intimate relationships, seeking out social support, and an ability to share feelings with others. It's likely that your childhood strongly influenced your current attachment style. may have changed since you were young, for better or worse, as a result of your adult relationships. And it's also possible to move toward a more secure attachment style with conscious effort. By learning more about yourself and experimenting with new ways of relating to others, your relationship style can gradually become more and more secure. Let's welcome Leah and dive into this in-depth discussion. Hello, Leah. How are you?
0: Good, and yourself?
1: Fantastic.
0: Good for here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All set and ready to roll. <laughs> yeah, it's always the amazing thing. You know, we get kind of caught in our own bubble in our little corner of the world sometimes. And it's interesting to realize that as we interact globally. I've really enjoyed that aspect. Of the podcast experience, how we're able to somewhat step into the shoes of another and not only see the cultural differences, but then also recognize just some of those different abilities to be in different frames of reference at the same time. It's a great exercise to me to look at in how we perceive things differently, just based on our environment.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, I yeah. want to jump in with you today, um, looking at that angle of the role attachment styles play and psychosocial development modalities oh, informing wow. yeah. our behavioral patterns. So, I hope we're in alignment with that today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also to find out. So, <laughs> and if not, that's actually a really good thing because then we can have a discussion. Yeah. And we can expand yeah. each other's and also the audience's perception. Instead of saying, yeah, 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 yeah. It's
1: like repetitive dogma. Uh, So often we fall into kind of those pattern notions of our own belief cycles, of our own perception, of our own cognition. So I like to hit those parts where, you know, we kind of see things from different angles and then we're able to kind of flex and flow. So I think we're going to have a great talk today. (laughs) (laughs) What I'd really like to do with this talk is kind of establish where this relationship to our attachment style begins Mm. and then how that then rolls into so many other aspects of our behavior, so many of the other modalities, so many of the other experiences of our behavioral patterns, to me, become deeply rooted or deeply connected to that simple fact of how our childhood attachment style develops.
0: Yeah, Yeah. because it's on the coding. Like yeah. the programming by witnessing our parents' interaction and also very much around the messages that are implied, specific, you know, ingrained, the words that we hear, the actions that we see, yes. and then the reinforcement that goes with all of that as we develop over different stages of our life. And just becomes habit. It's that like yeah. knee-jerk reaction. And we don't <laughs> even know it's in there. Is it's like, where the fuck did that come from?
1: Yeah. <laughs> to, like, to me, you know, oh, we're going okay. back. <laughs> And unraveling some of that mystery of, you know, how did I wind up in this spot? Yeah. To me, gives that genesis point where this is where that spark takes hold a lot of times. That becomes what should light us up inside, but sometimes slips into that mode where it goes into the shadow side. I'd like to look at it from the approach of first mm-hmm. looking at the role of focusing on how to develop a secure attachment style and how that plays in. So leading in, you specialize in attachment theory and psychosocial development modalities as an author and personal coach. I'd like to get your insight a little bit on what exactly a psychosocial (laughs) approach looks at and how that context combines to influence the psychological and surrounding social environment in our developmental path and journey.
0: So my, my philosophy is very much around all that we do and experience has come from somewhere. And it is very much in, a, in the physical being is very much what we've learned and even exposed to. From a spiritual point of view, I believe that we're just pure love. So that we at the point of conception that blast is actually the spirit or the soul coming into the cell to then be showing through. So as time evolves and all the experiences that we have, we create our patterns. And using that understanding, I encourage others to explore themselves. So the psychosocial is like, okay, so what are you feeling? What are you actually interpreting the situation to be? What meaning are you mm-hmm. giving? What's the story that you're talking to yourself? And helping them to tease through that and go, oh, see the pattern, see the, the lies, but also the truth. And the feelings that have all been embedded and totally enmeshed and entangled together to create the physical reality from which they're being and perceiving and feeling from, which is the filters. You know, from the NLP perspective, it's the filters and perceptions that we interpret with life and interact with that. So by helping to clean the filter and say, well, maybe what your perception, your interpretation was critically correct at that time. But now with adult eyes and adult experience, you can have empathy for your parents. You can have compassion for the truth of what was going on and you didn't need to internalize or take on the stresses that you felt because we do it, because we're so enmeshed energetically and emotionally with our Mm. parents up until roughly the age of seven. By teasing through that and helping them to detach and go, well, that was was my parents' stuff. That was the cultural. That was the teachers. That was the schooling. That was all everything else. And I was just being my loving self, wanting to be held and touched in a loving, supportive, nurturing way, in a healthy way. And I couldn't get it for whatever reason. So helping them to see that and to feel it. And that breaks the entanglement spider web.
1: That's such a crucial role from my perspective in creating not only that healthy relationship, that healthy sense of identity of the self, but also builds our bonds with others. It also allows us And as I'm going to get into a future episode with some branching off from this concept to develop a more selfless experience in that interaction with others and with the universe in general. So looking in (laughs) and that's that's one of the great things about this program as we've evolved is every story leads to the next chapter or the next page of the overall story, we learn to start to see how these patterns fit together to form that bigger puzzle, that bigger picture that simply is our being. As we lean in, let's start off by getting a little scholarly overview of what our attachment styles are from the basis of their function and their main purpose in our development.
0: All right. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky. It's been a while since I've technically used the right terminology and everything. <laughs> but, but in essence, there's four main styles. And we've been talking about secure, which is when we relate in a healthy way to other people and very much to ourselves. So if we still we feel okay. We have a healthy self-esteem. We have a healthy viewpoint of the world. We don't super critical ourselves or others. We don't self-protect with huge barriers and walls. We allow people in but we also know when to actually keep people out. You know, we know what's right and wrong, what's healthy and not so healthy, and so we interact with the world in a more flawed way. When we've had experiences such as abuse or or just really horrible care, and it can go from the spectrum of being neglect, you know, emotional ignorance, you know, not being able to be supported by parents, not having that touch, the emotional, psychological encouragement, then we develop strategies to cope, to say, well, I I don't know where I fit in the world, for instance. And so we lower our self-esteem our self-perception. And that's where the problems start to arise, because in adulthood, we don't know who we are. And so we want our you know, innate need is to feel love and secure and, and touch and all that sort of basic innate thing. But we haven't learned a healthy way to ask for it, to state clearly our needs. And so we will grab it, in a sense, will chase after it. And so from that spectrum, like the grasping, the needy, the demanding, the expressive insecurity, the anxiety aspect is the other end of the spectrum. So it is a spectrum too. So to give it a label, like the anxious, anxiety section to the ambivalent is, is in a sense useful because then we can go, okay, well, this is roughly where you fit. This is your general characteristics and what it represents and how it then will generally show up in the world. But knowing that most of us are so screwed up just a degree, <laughs> we will literally flow between the anxious, depression, anxiety aspects of ourselves with some people and yet be so distant and disresponsive and almost protectively repulsive with other people. And all of that is learned. As, as children, we were exposed to so many different people. We learned that some people treated us in a way, so we learned and adapted to go, this is how I'm going to protect myself. I still want the connection, but I've learned that if I ask for something, I'm going to get slapped in the face, for instance. So the child won't repeat that easily, <laughs> or that's the only way I'm going to get attention and affection. So I will misbehave, but at least get feeling of being touched, even if it's a unhelpful, hurtful sensation. So when we look at this from that spectrum, you know, we can always say, okay, where are you today? Who are you representing? or reflecting back in your interaction. And then there's a the fourth one, which is the totally dysregulated, where everything is a mishmash. There is no identity. There's no real safe connection. The whole world is a scary place. And so we, in a sense, shut down, which is, in my interpretation, complex PTSD in its global representation, where the individual so desires to have connection, but it feels so unsafe and doesn't know how to actually do that in the world. And so we shut down. We disconnect, we we hibernate, we misbehave at times. We use lots of different coping strategies to self-regulate. Most of them are unhealthy, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that sort of stuff. It's the um, representation of a person who's trying to connect with themselves, but just can't do it without help from external support. So that's my interpretation.
1: Looking at it from that perspective, you know, we're looking at that secure attachment style being the basis for being comfortable with our proximity which is you know that relationship to ourselves to others and that sense of autonomy you know that sense of self awareness so to speak starting in if we're leaning into that childhood upbringing where we're in a warm nurturing environment you know where the caregivers are responsive where we're mirroring and patterning mature emotional styles of well-being, supportive, encouraging. The child is forming that effective sense of a self-concept. Who am I? What am I? How am I? Becoming our identity.
0: But I'm also worthy and deserving of the time and the effort. Yes. I'm not not a pain in the backside. I'm not a distraction. (laughs) I'm not too needy. I'm not too this and that and that. It's like, you know, my parents actually like me, (laughs) you know, I feel loved. (laughs) They listen to me. They encourage me to um, have an opinion. And from that perspective, I'm heard. And even if there's a disagreement, I still know that they love me. Like I can go off the rails. And as teenagers, they push the boundaries, we know. But they know that no matter what, they can still come home and they will come home. Or they spend a lot more time at home because they know that it's okay to be themselves there instead of running away to find that culture uh, within their peers or even other family units that have a sense of togetherness, healthy or not.
1: As we move into adulthood, that healthy sense, ideally, should also give us that kind of objective view of life, where we're able to see things from multiple frames of reference, multiple points of view. We're allowing others to simply be themselves and have their own sense of view of the world, their own sense of opinions, their own thoughts and feelings. Hmm. Ideally, that's the best case scenario. (laughs) (laughs) We are. And as we we mentioned, so often, you know, we can frequently experience when those pathways, those connections have kind of went off the track, so to speak. We'll get to that in a moment, a little deeper. You know, I'd like to look at some of those crucial roles, some of those crucial elements, essential elements of our being that come into play. You know, we look at the important role that it plays in identity concept, our parents mirroring and patterning how we attach to the sense of ourselves. Share a little with us on that.
0: So, My take on it is the parents actually be able to communicate in a loving way and hearing out the other person, that's a whole role modelling of communication, like healthy communication. And it's still allowed to have a disagreement or an argument, but yet it's like, okay, we've vented, I still love you, now let's work through. So there's that, not the holding of the grudge or the judgment, or we don't distance ourselves unless we actually need some time out in a healthy way. And communicating that to the children in a healthy way. So what I used to do with my children, I said, you know, you're allowed to have an opinion. These were, you know, preschool, uh, which in your terminology, um, so let's say seven to ten years old. I would say to my kids, you know, going through the divorce process and all that sort of thing, distancing, separation from their dad, you're allowed to have an opinion. I want you to express yourself. You tell me how you're feeling. But they had to get permission, to use a swear word, I had to, I did create self-boundaries and say this is where it's becoming inappropriate if you're getting really aggressive. Yeah. It's just like, okay, let's just calm down a little bit, have some time out. So with that, it's like if we can model that to between parents, I think co-workers within other relationships that we, you know, children are experiencing or witnessing, it says to them, it's a very clear message, we're allowed to have disagreements, we're allowed to have discussion and different opinions, we're allowed to see other points of view and not are always right. You know, truth is three parts yours, mine, and the core or the, core, um, the vector of that.
1: There okay. literally are three classifications of truth beyond yep. that. And that's a whole nother discussion.
0: <laughs> but three another.
1: classifications of how we kind of scientifically and theoretically mm. dissect the perception of truth. You know, to throw that out to kind of counterplay and keep in our mind that Truth can be very liquid in its being a lot of times.
0: Where our truth comes from, our interpretation of truth is our childhood messaging. It is the experiences that we had growing up. It's our interpretation, the filters that were implanted or we took on during those very critical stages. That black is black and white is white. There's definitely not allowed to be any gray. You know, for a child who who (laughs) learns there are very strict rules. And there's no ambiguity. It's just like this is the way the world works. You know, just get out of your head that there's any other possibility tends to grow up with very black and white thinking. Whereas those who grew up in a a household of discussion and exploration and curiosity and wonder and adventure, like even just going down to the park and playing with other kids and observing how people interact in different ways is an eye-opener for some kids. You know, going to school, but again, having flexibility and encouraging play instead of the dogma of sitting at your desk shut up, listen to the Mm -hmm. lesson, reiterate exactly what the teacher said. The exams are based on rote learning instead of going, well, how about this idea or how about that idea? And and teasing out the possibilities of those boundaries and having Mm. confidence to go, I want to go explore the world and knowing that it's safe to do so because I'm not going to be cut down at the knees. I'm not going to be told (laughs) off. I'm not going to be sacrificed on the spit, so to speak. Because I have a different opinion. And is it my truth? Have I done the research? Maybe not. And being open and being criticised in a healthy way to go, okay, well, maybe I'm not right. Maybe your point of view has definitely elements of truth in it. And how much can I then integrate into my thinking not to subjugate or to be put under, but to go, let's open this discussion, explore how much more I can incorporate and be more whole and more holistic. That's where I help people.
1: Stay. Yep. I love relating to this point of black and white thinking that's mm-hmm. operating from a very insecure place. You're questioning yeah. everything in a way that you doubt rather than questioning out of curiosity, whether you're simply opening and becoming vulnerable. We shift that. And I've you know, grasped this new word interacting with another podcast, integrative complexity, that's moving into that state of seeing all of the various shades of differentiation, all of the different grays, all of the different colors and potential within anything. Moving into that secure space where you simply become the curious observer without feeling you need to influence things.
0: Yeah. And that's a challenge for most of us. because We either want to fix something or we want to make it in congruence with what we think should be but there's no shoulds in life you know that's one of the things i learned you know through the divorce process there's no shoulds in life my expectation of my then husband were really quite unrealistic but i was ignorant and i was I come from a dysregulated attachment style, so nothing actually makes
1: sense.
0: Um, so to work through that whole disarray, literally that whole dogma or I've got no freaking idea who I am or what I'm meant to be, how I fit into this world, how to relate in a healthy way. I have nothing of that. It's funny now I'm done to really see and experience or maybe a mature way of thinking, but I'm also almost 50. So it's like it's taken this long to get to the point of going, You're allowed to have your opinion. I don't need to fix you. I like you for what you are, what you are. I can see your pattern. And that's been the reward for me, you know, studying this is actually going, oh, I can see now why I have insight into why you are doing and saying, and behaving the way you are. And I can have empathy for that. I can see how difficult your upbringing has made it to relate to me. You know, even though we like each other or even though we (laughs) respect each other, Communication styles are very different. Love languages are very different. You know, the confidence to be able to say what we want to say is sometimes challenging because, you know, the other thing, the mirroring of our past from others. Who do I represent in that person's history? Maybe I was overbearing. Maybe (laughs) my persona comes across as the mother in that person's life or, you know, the the rigid school teacher or something like that, I just push buttons. And the other person has then the opportunity to learn and to grow, but often because they haven't got the skills yet will shut down or run away or become anxious or put the walls up. And that's the other blessing. When we are more aware, we can go, okay, well, this makes sense. We can have compassion. We can step back, look at our own personality and persona that we're projecting into the situation. Okay, I need to not accommodate, but we need to be conscious of how we interact with that. Particular person to help create that secure place from their perceptional point of view. To go, oh, I can trust this person. I can feel okay with this person, and that's the role of a therapist, is it not? To create yes. that safe space in a therapy <laughs> therapeutic alignment. Go, I hear you. I see you. I recognise where you're at, and I will just go gently to encourage you to see who you are, which is just pure love. Lay with the air, Lay with. Limiting belief systems that have just caused you to self protect in potentially a harmful way with, with disconnect or anxiety or um, just leave the fuck alone, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> depending on what their style of self protection is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, relate that back to kind of some of those patterns we picked up and adopt from our parents. I think most of us can relate to from a non judgmental standpoint as most. That we can step into that act of non judgment of simply observing parents in a social environment, in a public environment where the child is acting up and the parent is constantly, stop that. You know, you're making a scene, stop that. Your behavior is out of alignment. You know, stop that because I'm looking bad becomes a big thing sometimes. You know, it's more about the response the parent is receiving. For the child's action as a reaction to their emotional state. Yeah, I can relate to that a little bit because that if we put it in a frame of reference was somewhat of the upbringing of past generations. You know, I experienced that to some level in my own upbringing was fortunate enough that at a very young age that just needled the crap out of me. (laughs) <laughs> as I moved into, you know, I say fortunate because it was yeah. in gratitude that in my own adulthood I avowed to myself with my own children. How now can I approach this and learn and grow? How now can I approach this from a new perspective to create that new frame of reference? Now I use that new frame of reference in my present knowledge, not where I was as a 19, 20-year-old parent. For the first time, but relating to that, how can I differentiate from the upbringing of my parents? Very good upbringing, very safe and nurturing upbringing, but still that little bit of divide where that little niggle of doubt comes in, where that little niggle of insecurity comes in because you're not moving into that supportive role. Now, relating that back to my eldest daughter at the age of two, she was a notorious tantrum thrower in public <laughs> and she'll probably slap me for saying this but we've had this conversation <laughs> but <laughs> you know she'd throw herself on the ground kind of pout throw her fit and generally trying to find a way to make herself seen to try to get her way yeah realizing that and realizing somehow miraculously <laughs> that that was the frame of reference my parent was in I said, stop, how do we do this? How do we shift this to a new kind of psychological reprogramming? And rather than saying, get up, you're making the scene, taking the time to stop and say, why are you down there? Very first thing, you're starting to reframe that reference of why are you down there? And it puts the whole new view there that now I have to think and feel why I'm down here shifting that as we develop that with this child, you know, Mm -hmm. actually asking her, well, why are you upset? You know, very often the response would be, I'm upset. I'm mad that I didn't get X or Y out of the toy aisle. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we can address this from a mature, emotionally responsive angle. Now there, again, I'm talking from future reference and current reference where I'm at now, but understanding that that was a very emotional outburst, a very kind of reaching outburst, because I tried to relate that back to my experience as a child. You're wanting and needing something. And usually that's just the simple acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. Very fortunate that somehow I put that two and two together out of (laughs) my own frustration and said, how can we deconstruct this? now?" That kind of evolved over that age period between one and a half and four, where we kind of tried to tweak that and find the way to kind of evolve it. But that simple reframing of bringing that role of empathy, that role of compassion, that role of listening and understanding sets that groundwork for that secure foundation of attachment, from my perspective.
0: Yeah, and I would agree. And, And it's the challenge because we are being triggered. As parents, it, it does reflect a you know? lot. <laughs> and it's our own criticism, our own judgments that can often do more damage because I know when I'm looking into a situation with young children and other families, go, like, oh, you, you poor thing, you poor parents. I feel so much empathy for you. You know, can I actually help? Can I help diffuse? <laughs> um, i also a waitress. So sometimes on the floor, it's just like, oh, you're doing a great job, mum. It's okay. We've all been there. And yes. giving them the support to go, okay, what else is going on here? And it's our own security that is being triggered. You know, our criticism going, you're just a bad mum, a bad <laughs> dad. You haven't got a hands on your children. The expectation that children should behave, but they don't have the maturity. They don't have the insight, the wisdom. They don't have, um, you know, the, the latest uh, messages coming out is that the brain isn't wired yet to have insight. And the skills and the abilities and the context and the construct of their world, we able to behave. And so the emotional rollercoaster that little ones go through is simply how do I wire my brain to make sense and how do I do that in the right way that actually feels good? How do I say to my parent, I'm really, really upset that I didn't get that toy without having a <laughs> because there's so much emotional information going through their body that it can't make sense. It's like the floodgates of frustrations being opened. But what again, if we look at the iceberg of emotions, what is the tip and what is actually the deeper feeling of that tantrum and helping to in the young one to actually okay, well, I feel this, 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 and this and this. But at the end of the day, they just want to feel something that's theirs or they want to get ex, um, acceptance from the parent and that could be their love language, a gift, it could be the child's love language. Every time I receive a gift, I, I know my mummy loves me. <laughs> and so exploring all of that, the communication styles that we inherit either genetically or programmed in or innately to the limbic, you know, all that sort of stuff, the other technical issues of how <laughs> we become who we are. Yeah. There's so many different elements and it is, So interwoven and complex. And just to go with attachment styles as a theory of insight is actually quite detrimental too, because then you talk about so many other aspects of reality.
1: I look back again, and so often we try to relate from our story, you know, my story growing up. So often, as we're doing that act of disciplining, you know, we're acting out, we're kind of feeling our way through the world. And as that kind of punishment realignment, you know, we get that swat on the butt. Mm -hmm. We get that swat on the butt, you know, and that's not to dive into too much controversy on corporal punishment. But I think we've kind of evolved a little bit, hopefully as a society, to move beyond that and see a broader view of parenting. In the frame of reference, growing up in the 70s is very common to get the swat on the butt. (laughs) It's moving into What's known as operant conditioning, cause and effect. Yeah. Because I misbehave, the effect isn't that I learn to take responsibility for my actions. The effect is when I step out of line, I get the big SWAT. I don't learn the effective action to feel my emotions and express them, to move through them, to think about them, to process what I'm doing, moving into one of our big mantras of the show. When you're having that emotional reaction, think it. You've got to think about the emotion. You've got to feel it and allow it to be and accept it. Process it and then simply release it. Once you've made some sense of it, once you've come to an understanding of it, once you've become in a sense of knowing with what it's trying to signal within me, you can then release it and move into an effective action. Mm -hmm. relating that back to my own child. You know, I didn't have that full awareness at the time, but there was that basic understanding within me as an adult where that was unpleasant. As a result of that, I felt that need to shrink. I dealt with that up until about three years ago Mm. in various ways till I started to form some of my own self-awareness with it. Maybe some of my own healing of some of that emotional wounding. We'll get into that a little. Wow, I'm going to come back to that because I think that's such a (laughs) a juicy core element today. Not just because it's my story, but I'm able to relate that now and we'll get there where I was able to bridge that gap in an even further way. What's the key to a happy and fulfilling life?
0: I think it's the fear of showing up in our purity and our truth.
1: We fear the sight.
0: That's what I feel like this whole journey has brought me to.
1: Oftentimes the things that we think will make us happy will not bring us safety and security. At the end of the day we are a sovereign energetic being who has all the tools already on the inside.
0: It is within your fingertips. You can create the life that you want and the only person that is stopping you from creating that life
1: is you. Our greatest transformation happens from deep within. We're all on the journey to discover the light inside. That beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. Visit us at www.the dot us to find out more. Let's look a little bit at some of these core positive components of the resulting secure attachment style as we develop that. You know, I'm going to try to put the seeds of thought out there for the essential state of our wholesomeness, for our growth, for our evolution, for moving into those what we often deem elevated or higher state of beings. Make your own relationship with those things. I'm moving to a point now where I'm realizing where some of my own biases step in that. And how sometimes that makes a muddy mess of things. Find your relationship to those. Find your relationship to those concepts. But from that positive aspect, what do you feel, Leah, are some of the more productive or essential positive results of having a secure attachment style in life?
0: I I think it becomes utopian. I think because we can have empathy and compassion for ourselves, we actually don't criticize ourselves. So we're able to do life. Now we're going to mess up and it's going to be okay. We can, fix it, we can address it. We can relate to others. We have empathy and compassion for others. So we don't take on other people's projections. We don't get so <laughs> reactive when a person does or says something that we don't necessarily agree with. We go, Okay, that's an interesting concept. Uh, I can see their behavior. They're just in a state and not buy into the drama. We can actually hold space for the drama to hold at a distance, a healthy distance while we'll still allowing that person to do and be what they need to be. And then go, okay, let's see if we can modify this now that we've calmed down. Um, (laughs) We become good leaders because we give permission for others to be different to what they currently are. You know, the fact that we go through our own crap, we look at our (laughs) own issues, it gives permission for others to go, oh, I want to be different. And now maybe there's a way I can see because you've done it. I've seen you evolved. I've seen you become the person I would like to become too. So we give permission, we become a signpost or a lighthouse even to have the confidence to just do what you want to do, like to sing and to dance and to play and be childlike without judging or fearing other people calling us names or teasing us. know oh, that's right, you can do whatever you want. You know, I'm I like this song, I'm at a party, I'm just gonna dance and be me and to hell what you think you know, if it's appropriate. <laughs> that sometimes you don't do some behaviors or you don't say some words, but it's all relative. It's like, no, this is who I am and I'm okay with that. We, we have healthier relationships because we can be honest and vulnerable and still be considered the other person's position where they feel safe and comfortable to discuss different things too. So we don't bulldoze. We don't, override the conversation we don't just talk about ourselves we have that flow and we are more conscious of where other people are at and so we are able to hold space for their vulnerabilities in a safe way and so people feel comfortable with us they can come to us knowing that they're not going to be repulsed or repelled or projected onto or yelled at or screamed or judged or criticized name called they can go oh they can just be themselves around people who are secure they feel They still feel insecure themselves or vulnerable or, um, not worthy enough. But it's what I find is that they go, I can still feel vulnerable and insecure and say what I need to say. And I still feel okay enough to say it because I'm not going to be criticized or judged. (laughs) And that's what I experience a lot. People just able to say what they need to say. Or that's, I often will say, I've never told anyone that. How does that, how is that possible? (laughs) And it's because I've been able to hear them. I just let them say what they have to say, whichever word they need to use. I don't judge them. I don't judge their history or their past. Okay, okay, well, how does that make sense now? What is the pattern? Can you see how that story is now playing out in your own reality now? And so having um, secure people create a secure space for others to be held in. I think that's the most important aspect. From a parent-child, you know, we allow our children to make cause and effect adventures, knowing that they need to live life. We can't protect them. They need to learn how to make a decision and learn the consequences of the decision without being rescued before they get to that consequent learning experience. Talk about it. What did you do? Why did you do it? How did it make you feel? What's the outcome? Okay, what messes do we need to clean up if there's any messes? How can (laughs) we celebrate the lesson? How can we celebrate the win that you got out of this? And what would you or could you do differently next time? And going through that learning experience with a child is is challenging as we've discussed, you know, our own triggers being triggered, going, oh, oh I wouldn't do it like that. <laughs> but knowing that they need to do it, it is part of their journey to become adults and allowing them that space, like protectively from a distance, having the space to go, okay, this is yours, this is your project, this is your choice. I respect that, but I'm always here if you need help, support, guidance rescue <laughs> you know you're not <laughs> going to be abandoned not going to be rejected but we will talk about the process that you find yourself in so that you can learn and I can also learn at the same time and that's that makes a big difference
1: yeah I think it's kind of essential at this point because it's popped into my head to say that that doesn't say when we develop that secure attachment style we don't occasionally still feel some of those senses of insecurity some of those senses of doubt some of that fear, we just have a more effective awareness of it. We have a more compassionate and open outlook on it. And we're able to shape that and pull that back into that view, free of those senses of shame, free of those senses of judgment, free of those senses, sometimes of the expectation we often load it with.
0: And when it, when it comes up, we can see it for what it is. Oh, shame's here again. Yeah. Our oh, guilt is here. Frustration's here. Okay. So what is the message <laughs> in that emotion? What am I feeling ashamed about? You know, where does it actually stem from? Who was it representing with? Is it a truth or a lie? Do I need to continue feeling that? How is it helpful? Because in my interpretation, I was talking about this a lot in the books. Is our emotions are just the messengers? They want to keep us safe. They've been a learned response to the negative experiences that we had growing up. So they're all designed to protect us from not reiterating, not re-feeling those experiences where we really, really weren't happy. So every emotion, good or bad as we label them, has a really important role to play in our self-protective roles. Joy and happiness is like we want more of that. (laughs) Frustration, anger, um, disconnect is really blessing because it's like, okay, why am I feeling this anger? What is ticking me off so much? And what's the story that I've given to it? What does it justify? What is it trying to protect me against? What's the pattern, the cause and effect that lead to if I continue down this path? So to use that information and learning the tools to recognize the awareness, what's the hidden message, what's the real message, what's the story, what's the filter of that, what's interpretation that I'm putting into the scenario now that comes from the past? Is it still useful? Sometimes self-protection is extremely useful. Bad relationships, you know, when the other person isn't aware yet, is abusive you want to be aware that this isn't a healthy (laughs) situation and not just go along with it and just oh it'll be all right it will be right I can rescue it it's just like no this is actually unhealthy and I cannot make a positive impact it is the best and wisest choice for me to leave and disengage you know having the confidence of self-security comes and go I know I will be okay without that relationship I will survive I can still breathe air I'm not going to fall apart while looking after myself and stepping away from abuse, from neglect, mm. from emotional um, manipulation, um, psychological warfare, you know, that whole dichotomy of I need someone, but I don't need them that badly. I'm okay enough not to experience that type of relationship that I had as a child. I can be an adult. I can look after me and get my needs met in other ways. I don't need that situation in my life at this point ever again.
1: From that angle, relating that back to then how that becomes some of that cycle, that pattern of falling into those repetitive relationships yeah. of those kind of abusive natures, those kind of underserving natures. Some of those experiences of narcissism, to put it in that frame of reference, because of that inner sense of missing that secure bond, of falling into that pattern.
0: Yeah. It's the familiar normal. Yes. <laughs> You know, and that, that's the scary part. And I sit with my children, but obviously I know my story and my, my children's story, but seeing the pattern of interrelationship that they live now in their early 20s, it's just, my goodness, I can see so clearly how screwed up they are. Yeah. And I contributed to that, but I also understand, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where I've come from, that dysregulated emotional state. And my husband at the time, their dad, you know, his trauma, blending together to create the perfect storm, Mm. which now the child has to work through, had to work through, and now can live through. Yeah. Mm. Um, The eldest one is a very different person. He lived through the trauma. He's showing such inner strength and capacity to see himself. It's amazing. Mm. You know, and I haven't, I didn't see them for 10 years because of circumstances. So I wasn't influenced through their teenage years. But he's come out the other side going, you know what? I won't use all the colourful words. <laughs> but he made it very clear hey, his judgement. I that like family. all of the colours of the rainbow <laughs> here, the light
1: inside. It takes all but, of know, those light spectrums to make up lives. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true, but his interpretation, like i have done the foundational work, well, that's all I'm gonna say. Um, but his interpretation of the family and family that he grew up in, those teenage years, he now says it was just so wrong. And now he feels, after us rebonding over the last two years. He feels comfortable to say the horrible things that happened to him, but that didn't happen overnight. And so, creating a secure relationship with my son, you know, in his 20s after everything he'd gone through and being a male of a 20, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the generational, (laughs) the hormonal, the, you know, the brain structures of that age being appropriate, his reactions were normal and healthy. But then he needed, he needed support. And so, he was able over time to see that there's other stories involved in this that I wasn't, as he wasn't um, privileged to information. So he's been able to work through some of that. And that's the part of the secure relationship as adulthood, being able to break down some of our own walls and go, okay, maybe mm-hmm. there is something else here. You know, in friendships and in relationships, intimate relationships in particular, where all the buttons are going to be pushed. Our parental stuff, our sibling stuff, our friendships, our peer groups, societal norms are being triggered every single second of the day almost. Uh, It takes a very secure person to hold space and come and say, this isn't working for me and this is why. It's not about you being a bad person saying, I'm being triggered and my trigger is this. This is where the button leads back to. Can I express this? Can you help me to understand why your behavior is from your past? And let's see if we can actually make sense of it together and rebuild a different trigger point towards happiness (laughs) instead of annoyance and frustration and bitterness. Is this relationship worth it? But it takes secure people to be able to do that or a willingness to become secure together because we all have baggage. We all have a part. We all have experiences even in adulthood where we put another layer of self-protection around because we, we were reinforced from an earlier message that we're not worthy of love. We can't do relationships. We can't do this. We can't do that. You know, every failed relationship has a possibility to say that we're not good enough, but it also has the opportunity to go, okay, what was the contributing factors? What were my choices in that relationship that contributed to it not connecting or working? Is it my past? Was it my actions? Was it just incompatibility? How much of it was me and how much of it was the other person not able to meet me halfway? So, that's where the attachment styles, if we can understand the the basic principles of each and then we can go with empathy, oh, that makes sense. That person fits into that loose category and go, well, yeah, that makes sense. What caused them to become that? And as the book by Dr. Perry and Oprah, you know, what happened to you? If we can have those discussions and the person's where to say, yeah, this screwed me up because of this and this and this. And yes, I'm knee-jerking because you said that, that and that and I'm feeling this as a response, and then it makes more sense. You can go, well, that was logical. Of course you would feel that. That makes sense. Let's see if I can modify my behavior. So I'm not consciously triggering you. And can you feel your trauma response to that? Because I love you enough to keep you in my life. I want you in my life. But you need to do that part. I need to do this part. And together, hopefully we can work through it. And that can take a lifelong journey, as we know. That doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen in two weeks. We're all on the journey, right? (laughs) Oh, that's right. It doesn't happen from the time you say yes to a relationship and, and the wedding date. It doesn't happen in the honeymoon period. It happens every day going, I commit to learning about myself so I can bring the new learnings and insight to the table and then work together with the other people involved.
1: And that's not to say that we get so caught up in ourselves on that journey that the arrival itself becomes the vision, becomes the mission, becomes the purpose. Yeah. We have to have that secure attachment to that journey. In order for ourselves. it to be effective. We have to secure within ourselves first. And we yes. have to commit
0: to the externals. But we need to be okay within ourselves. And that can be the hardest part. Because as we know, when triggers are being pressed, it can be like a bomb. And it can shatter our own self-perception. Our insecurities will come to the surface. And go, I can't do this. I'm not worthy of his love or her love. I'm the one at fault here because that's what we learned as children. I am not able to get my mum's and dad's attention. I can't work out how to make this work to get that hug. You know, I'm going to bed crying or I'm going to bed upset because they're too busy. They can't even read me a story. I can't get this, this, and this. And that's what's being triggered in a romantic relationship, the desire and the need for the connection and love and affection and reaffirment that, yeah, I love you no matter what. You know, you are important. That's what we're seeking for with intimate relationships. And if that can't be met because the other person's upset and triggers in them themselves, then we question, is this, what is this, who am I, am I able, is this worthy of? And the whole base attachment style gets reactivated and then it's up to us to own it. It's up to us to fix up and help, see the, help the other person see that we're working on ourselves and help them to understand the new version that we evolve into each every single second that we choose to be different. And that's a challenge. (laughs) That's another (laughs) whole story in itself. Because as we change, we become new people, and there could be other conflicts that are opened up in that incompatibilities as one person becomes more secure, that the codependent trauma bonded relationship. We knew the dance, we learned the dance as a child. And as one becomes more secure, the dance steps changes and it can cause huge confusion in in that codependent, trauma-bonded relationship going, I don't know how to do secure. I don't know how to do love. I don't know how to do this consideration. I don't know how to do this communication. You're hearing me, but that's so freaking scary. I can't do that. I don't know how to feel heard and feel safe. And that's where it can get really unsettling to both sides. I'm being nice to you, just so freaking scary, piss off, I can't handle you, <laughs> you've been too nice to me, you're helping me, I can't do help. And that's, the, that's the one that came up for me at work, you know, we have a new floor manager. <laughs> and he knew I had to, I got to a point I was treated one day severely and I had to say to him, this is the reason why. And then he would come up to me out of honest concern, no interest in my welfare, and you'd say, can I help you? And I'd say, don't, don't ask that question, I can't I can't deal with that question. I just cannot (laughs) physically deal with it. And I learned that he wasn't trying to manipulate. (laughs) He wasn't trying to overpower me. It was genuine consideration for my well-being. And that's part of the stepping stone. You know, when we're vulnerable, people want to step in and help and support, especially if they're secure. But sometimes it'd be so freaking scary and confronting and make the other person feel insecure and unworthy and trigger off a whole cascade of another set of emotions.
1: <laughs>
0: um, trigger me off, leave me alone. I can't do that just in this instant.
1: Can we
0: visit it next week. Not today.
1: Yes. <laughs> and we've put a lot of emphasis on the positive today. I hope so. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to feel like we've brushed that aspect of the insecure under the rug. Mm. Mm because so often that is the connecting point that is the point of relationship and if we're speaking solely to that unfamiliar aspect then that's where we leave people lost and wondering so let's shift a little bit and look at how we start to understand spotting some of those insecure attachments I'm not gonna dive in real deep today with going through all four of them and naming all four of them because I feel like we've kind of touched that base. (laughs) How do we start to then spot some of these occurrences where we're experiencing that insecure attachment? I think that's a good relational point for us to kind of interject today.
0: Yeah, and as I said earlier too, it can show up in different ways with different relationships. So we don't always have this back to the same presentation. But the most common ones, you know, people please are the martyr syndrome, you know, going to always please other people to get inspection, attention or acknowledgement or acceptance. Yes. The rejection and repulsion, you know, step away with the walls are so high and so thick that you can't even get a conversation out of people. Anxiety is another uh, obvious yes. one in our society. What are people anxious about? What are they feeling about themselves that they feel they cannot do things or talk to people depending on the situation? Procrastination sabotages feeling not worthy enough. I'm not able to perform, so we perfect. You know, we concentrate so hard, and that becomes sabotage too. Perfectionism, all the addictions, avoidance, distraction. Again, it's about I'm not able to do something, so I'll distract myself and feel good in the way that I can, no matter what it is—is is it sex, drugs, rock and roll? Is it exercise, spending money? Is it that sure hit, quick fix? Is it you know the the love interest and Constantly finding other people to be attached to, and they all fall apart because we haven't evolved to say, "Yeah, this could have legs and try to walk." walk Uh, We got to put
1: legs under things to let them (laughs) stand on their own two feet sometimes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, walk together. You know, as humans, how do we project ourselves into the world? Some of those stuff you. (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the whole barrier pushing the button pushing on purpose you know some of the cultural niches the nuances within the subgroups the whole rebellion period of life you know at what phase do we go through <laughs> <or> how often <laughs> do we go through it um the whole social culture at the moment is in the flux yeah. but if you look from a global point of view which part of the attachment style is as a culture, whether the demographics of a city or a country or the global, where are we actually fitting into that? And that's been an interesting observation yes. using all this—a person's rebut against another person's decision. It's like it's all run from fear: fear of what? Fear of loss of control? Fear of threat? Potentially authority abuse of systems, uh, manipulation. All of those can be used as representation of a person's attachment style. So we can, conversations, listen to key words, the actions, how do they interrelate, how do they project, what sort of barriers do we put up, how do we say yes and say no. It's something, And uh, again, it's the learning the nuances of the different styles. You know, oh, that's the passion, this is where roughly a person fits, and then testing it. You know, okay, this is all true for you. And see so what they say or do.
1: I think we can include a few little pointers and tips in our show notes, perhaps, maybe listing out some of these base elements, some of these base experiences, base reactions, because very often they're reactionary when it's in that insecurity realm. Very often in the secure realm, they become more of a response action rather than reactive and simply being triggered.
0: Yeah. And and something that I, I do believe, we have several layers of that. Like you said, Secure, it's a, a thought-through process. I'm responding to this. Then you have the 1st case reaction, which is like a trigger response. Oh, yep, I think this. And there's some level of conscious thought that has gone into the reaction. And then you have that total knee-jerk where in a split second, something comes out. <laughs> you say <laughs> something and you go, what did I just say? Or the reaction, you know, the whole defense mechanism kicks in as a physical response that you go, I, what did I just do? What did I just say? I have no idea where that's come from. And then it's that after reaction, far out, you know, I didn't realize that was in me. And so with that too, the deeper the berry, the deeper it is, <laughs> the more the knee jerk it will be. So if it's, uh, depending on the chronological order, or how many times it's happened and how much protection is around that core instance will almost, you know, be reflected in how much of a knee jerk it is compared to, because we keep it under wraps. We know that to interrelate in our society, we have to pretend to be secure. We have to pretend to be normal, but sometimes normality becomes too much. And so there will be leakings, so to speak, of our attachment style that comes through the way that we say things, the way we behave or react, the way we choose people, the type of people we choose to hang out to because that's a representation of our familiar comfortable. You know, where do we feel safe? And you think, oh, that's interesting. You feel safer in mm-hmm. that environment compared to this environment. And that's another huge indicator. Like they, the, the quote says, you know, give yeah. us five friends and we can show who you are. <laughs> feather flock together. There's truth in that.
1: There can be, there can be a great truth yes. in that.
0: Yeah, so reflecting on who you spend time with, what do you focus on, where your primary thoughts go, mm-hmm. what is your reactions, how do people interpret you, and that can be really insightful information when we start to become curious about mm-hmm. ourselves, and how do we then become what we want to become, because there's an the, in that desire to be loved, to feel connected, to feel safe. That's the basic instinct. It's human. It's it's animalistic. We can't escape from that. We are tribal people. We want to be part of something. So as that need arises in adulthood, we just need to become aware of what's the layers over it, what's protecting that from being hurt again, and slowly and carefully just disentangling the stories, the limiting beliefs, the fears, the lies that we took on, and the biggest thing, the story that we made it justifiable we gave excuses for bad behavior from the past and we justify why we are now even if it's healthy or not that's who i am get over it (laughs) that's you're the problem you're the one that's reacting to me i'm okay maybe you're not okay let's just work on that
1: (laughs) (laughs) without taking too big of a left turn today and i'm going to preface it with that I would to throw in a couple key things in childhood from my perspective that might be a signal to start looking in your history a little bit to unravel some of this insecure attachment, physical and psychological abuse. You know, I'm not going to go into too deep today of dissecting all of the ways that connect because I feel we're going to have some other conversations coming up <laughs> that will relate to that. childhood and generational traumas. Both those experiences where you form that trauma reaction to a situation and circumstance or where you experience a parent or another adult, another sibling, anybody in your realm who's going through that trauma experience themselves and you are experiencing that connection to it. Early separation from the caregiver, you know, a parent- Say in divorce, you have a divided household that can lead into some of that insecure attachment. If that situation isn't bridged with the child properly, isn't brought into a proper awareness. Absenteeism, you know, a parent that isn't present in someone's life, you know, a child that's fathered in an absentee father or an absentee mother who suddenly leaves The upbringing, the child rearing, the process and exits their life and insecure parental figures themselves Mm -hmm. being one of the greatest sources. You know, so often it can be the case that as parents. All of those cards aren't dealt to you. <laughs> I'm going to put it that way. That, that's a very kind of neutral way to look at it trying to put it in an objective frame of reference. So as we don't step into some of that kind of shaming and guilting aspect that so often happens, all of those things can fall into those patterns, can lead into those conditions, can lead into those areas where it starts to bleed in for lack of a better word today. (laughs) Would you not agree a little bit?
0: A little bit? I think I agree a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a loaded question. You know, it says anytime you offer agreement, you're kind of backing somebody (laughs) in a corner, which can become somewhat of a, Insecure response, perhaps, you know, that's another area to look at. Are are, are we seeking validation in our own belief? Are we simply opening the floor to accept the beliefs of others? You know, that's that's a fine line. I want to throw that out there because it's something I've kind of turned an observation to Mm -hmm. and become curious about. Yeah. Does that not sometimes potentially become telling that you're looking for that sense from someone else? to verify your agreement rather than confidently exercising your agreement or whether you're overstepping that confidence in your ability to seek agreement where you become too married to your own biases.
0: Yeah. I think from what you just said, when we start to agree it is part of the curiosity because it helps us to make sense it's part of the story justification process. Yeah. Oh, that's why the way I am now that makes a lot more sense. And and then the next phase could be, okay, that makes sense. What can I now do about it? And that's when we start to become secure within ourselves. I think we do need to acknowledge our past, acknowledge with the least amount of emotional attachment as
1: possible, (laughs) but knowing that we're
0: going to be really pissed off and angry and hurt and all that emotional uh, wriggle that comes with realising Our childhood sucked, that we did not get the love, the support, the nurture that we needed. And it's only because our parents were not able to do it for their own experiences from childhood, their own stresses at that moment of our childhood crossing paths. And I think that's another big important aspect to consider, that we have the generational biases, the cultural, the historic, we have political, socioeconomic influences on our parents Pressuring them to perform in the parenting style is the normality in that generation that we were children. And I think that's a really, really big part to consider for, for uni. Like there was a, an assignment on diversity and was reflecting back onto our own childhood development. And as interesting as the seventies, I was born in 72 that my literally the generation of my years birth in our country. It was females were meant to be educated to empower them. That was the message for that year from a political, <laughs> social, political economic, cultural perspective. And yet my parents, I was the youngest of five kids, my parents, and their experiences was, you no, know, the dad had authority, the mother had no voice. My mother's dad died when she was five, so she delegated all controlled mm. parental responsibilities to my dad. We came from a social, very religious background. My dad was a priest. So we had all these spiritualist, religious laws on behavior. Um, and uh, you know, teen whole sexuality, you know, how much say you could have, how much you could voice back, how many separation roles you could actually have, independent structures growing up. That was so very limited. And there was also then a physical abuse in the family. Mm. So we had this dichotomous relationship where. You know, I grew up believing that I was the head of the house no matter what. If I misbehave, I have a voice, I actually say something out of line. I was going to get whipped in the butt with the buckle. And so I didn't want that to happen. But yet I was the youngest of five and I was emotionally and and physically neglected. So that's how I became so dysregulated. (laughs) (laughs) And so once I could see the story and I put it to the attachment, so I go, that makes sense. Like I knew the story. But I didn't understand how the story played out. I didn't understand how that shaped me. The story was one level, the impact is the other level. So when we start to get curious, okay, what is my story? How did that actually make me? How does that emotional response of my childhood dictate my now current situation and potentially my future? And then we can go with an adult mind well, that was just BS. That was pathetic. That was ridiculous. My parents could have known better, but also saying they didn't have resources, they didn't have counselling services in the year. Psychology as a study was only starting to evolve. They didn't know anything different. So we can have, I developed empathy for my parents and all that compassion Oh shit, that must have been really, really difficult, (laughs) you know, and there's lots of parts of the story that I'm not going to share, but then I can go, okay, now I'm an adult. Now I get to choose what I do with that information from here on. And for me, it was to study, it was for me to get through and go, I want to be different. I don't want to feel the way I'm feeling. I want to feel okay. I want to feel, I want to be connected. I want to have loving relationships. And that became a conscious choice. And I think that's the next step of evolution to becoming secure as an adult. It's just that like I choose to do things differently. And to do that, what do I need to learn? What do I need to experience? How do I create those experiences? How do I practice them? And how do I get the positive reinforcement to ensure I'm on the right path? And then we practice it. We learn, we evolve, we go through the whole learning cycle on a daily basis, reflect, modify, react, respond appropriately and get to the next level, knowing that we're constantly going to get triggered. And every trigger opportunity is literally that an opportunity to get clarity, awareness, insight, skills, adjustment and practice. Well, that's my
1: take anyway. <laughs> I love that take. That's such a vital take on it. <laughs> I want to look a little bit into some of the modal practices as we're speaking of practice that we can utilize to start to recreate this sense of attachment style. You know, I want to dive in a little bit with repairing <laughs> a little bit <laughs> a little bit. yeah, yeah we're we're running out here today and I think we're we're getting into a, a point where, We're opening a lot of doors, so let's leave a few doors open here, but look briefly at some of the aspects or modalities of practice that one can either engage with outside guidance or from their own self-practice. Let's look at the role of reparenting or going back with a practitioner or a therapist to reframe that childhood experience.
0: I think that's important, unless you've got some really trusted friends who are secure, yeah. who are willing to hold space. So then it becomes almost a therapeutic relationship anyway. But to have someone independent, unattached, unbiased, because they don't know you intimately in the past <laughs> of your family is really important because they don't get into the drama. Mm-hmm. They listen to the story and say, yep, that really was difficult. I can appreciate why you feel the way you feel, and that's legitimate." Honest response that's being very normal and human and understandable. And when we have that validation, you go, Yeah, that actually did suck. That was actually wrong. And hearing someone else validate our pain, and it's like, Okay, it doesn't feel as painful because I'm not trying to justify the pain anymore. It was meant to be like that. Like the pain is a normal response. And then the therapist or the friend, yeah, okay, so. How about you looked at it from this perspective? What did you get from that? What was the good that's come out? You're very independent. You're able to make decisions. You're able to know with good from bad. You're able to do this, this, and this. Let's focus on that while still acknowledging where the roots have come from. And so the whole self-reflection and reframing I think that's my biggest tool is helping a person, and I do it every single day, myself, (laughs) constantly. How are the other possible perspectives on this particular scenario or discussion? And going third person in my books, there's quite a few different strategies that I teach. You know, going third person, going onto the balcony, seeing the whole scene play out as if you're in a theatre and watching the scene play out on the stage. Imagine what the different characters actually sensing and feeling during that discussion or that experience. What could they have done differently? What did you need to hear from that particular person to make it okay for you? And then reframing it and having empathy and imposing all that love, that compassion to yourself and to the other. And then, as you said, reparenting. I didn't know how to parent myself. Yes. I was in a therapy session and the therapist said, well, you just need to love yourself like you wanted to be loved. i got no fucking idea what that means. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't have any idea. Mm. There was no reference point Yes, what it was like to be parented. Yes. I didn't know what that meant. And so I'd watch movies and I'd critically observe parents interacting with children or i will be yeah. out and I'd critically observe what it looked like and potentially felt like to see a loving relationship and that's how I learned how to start looking after me. I had no frame of reference. Yeah. I was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't. And that's why my, my children were so screwed up because I didn't know how to parent. I was imagining what it could be, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to do it in a, at an emotional level. So that was the part of the problem, too. <laughs> but I had to learn it. And to learn it, you have to mm. observe. And then you need to practice. You have to start to internalize it. And that can be the challenge because there's no confident frame, yeah. frame of reference. To hold, you know, in that container, what is normal? When you're that, you're so far out of safety, often that's safe, secure, you've got no reference. There's nothing yeah. to hold it safe. So you have to feed it safety. And you have to, the only way to learn it is to consider, could that be safe for me? And put a, like a, a drop of color, like, you know, those coloring liquids into a yeah. well, cooking color. Put a drop in, see how it feels like. Add a bit more, mm-hmm. add a bit more. And play with it and knowing that's going to be very uncomfortable. And the, in the uncomfortability, is then, uh, could I do more of that and see how far your safe zones are and expand it at a stage that is comfortable and safe for you with support, having with good
1: support, so often. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that moves us into kind yeah. of this thought that you have to kind of see it in order to be it. If you've yeah. never seen those kind of reactions, those kind of Responses or ways of being you become somewhat blinded to it, Mm -hmm. putting that into that new frame of reference then becomes that stepping stone, you know, looking at, from my perspective, that act of affirmation, you know, embracing positive I am statements sounds kind of hippy-dippy, whatever, sometimes, you know, all of the woo-woo and, eh, eh, you know, we get all of these other kind of insecure takes on it, (laughs) which is very relevant to what it actually is. You're insecure with the fact that you're questioning this frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, those positive I am statements, changing that frame of reference, simply writing it down and journaling it is often a very effective practice. Very simple practice. You might feel a little foreign at first with it. It might feel uncomfortable. It might even be a little painful sometimes because you're looking into the belly of the beast, so to speak, and facing it down. But I am what I believe now sometimes has to be simply shifted and guided to create that new statement. Yeah. And
0: I'll put a caveat around the affirmations because. It is a, a mind state. An affirmation is a, a conscious declaration. If our inner belief is a conflict with that, then that's when the anxiety and the rebuff can happen. Yes. Again, another opportunity to explore why can I cannot feel that I'm okay? Why do I feel so un-okay? And so we need to be aware sometimes when we're asking people to do affirmations. When it's so opposite or opposing to what we honestly believe, it is potentially a... Uh, a risk trigger and it can actually help us fall faster down the wrong way. Yes. Yeah. So t- sometimes using affirmations later in the therapy, allow a person to feel a little bit, they are okay. And say, I am okay. I am lovable. But sometimes it's the timing needs to be monitored a little bit too. See people where they're at. Not oh, super
1: meeting where they're at and holding that space and allowing that process to evolve. As we're moving into some of that more evolved, you know, we look at that active meditation. As you said, you know, stepping out on that balcony, so to speak, to get that reframed view, meditation can often be a great space to do that. Yeah. You know, we look sometimes at that notion of meditation and we're programmed that belief that it's a dumping or emptying of the mind. Sometimes you clear some of those cobwebs out and as you become a little more clear, you start to have other things filter in, you know, are you starting to filter in some of these new images, some of these new beliefs, some of these new frames of reference. So I'm going to throw that out there as a potential, as you move down that progression, we've got an episode coming up, looking at hypnosis in the often very powerful tool that that can be yep. to empower our ability to reparent. it. I'm going to bring in my own personal reference with this a couple of years back. As I mentioned, I was working through some of that insecure attachment myself, some of my own past traumas, some of my own reguidance, you know, when working with both a therapist and coaches and stumbled upon Marissa Peer and her rapid transformational program of guiding you through some of this past regression and actually having spoke with my therapist of saying, you know, maybe look at some of these areas of reparenting. And taking that approach of doing a past regression to go back and simply do some of those acts of those reinforcing statements, some of those bringing that to your awareness and saying, I now understand where some of this insecurity comes from. So hypnosis being another very productive tool that we can often pull into that practice. Now, hopefully that's guided by an experienced professional. (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) We'll we'll preface it, and that's not to be judgmental, but just as an observation, maybe one of those things where you really want to kind of do your research, kind of study a little bit, and make sure this is an informed relationship. We'll put it in that frame of reference. (laughs) Yeah, I think so often we can get in that insecure phase where we do start to react and pull in some of those triggers. You know, we start to look and become more judgmental, more subjective of even that practice of finding a practice. (laughs) I'm going to pull that in because I have witnessed it and I've observed it in order to objectively discern some of that. Just be aware of it and invest some time.
0: And also trust them, you know, the crossing of paths, the synchronous um, events or messages. Yes. Yeah, and I've actually done the recipient training. I am a qualified yes. practitioner. So with that too, working with the inner child, you know, that's the premise of a lot of the, her core work. And t- going back to the different ages where the trauma happened or the interpretation of a situation that was painful. And then saying to that child at that age, you are loved. Yes. You know, you are perfect. The other situation, the other people, other players in that incident were going through their own traumas and their own instances at that time. It wasn't about you. And that is the part that I found very useful and part of that reframing, that it's not me. It wasn't always about me. Yes, sometimes I was misbehaving. So, yes, the parent had the right to discipline and say, (laughs) That's not appropriate in this setting. There is always appropriate times where things need to be said. You can't just let a child run wild. I don't agree with that either. But it's like, okay, how was that message given? Was it done in a healthy way? Was a parent overstating the fact or was it really painful? Was there shame and embarrassment attached to it the way it was said or done? And so helping that little one see, okay, my mum or my dad said that, they're also in pain. they were embarrassed at the time or they were just doing what their parents did to them. So it's onward projection that isn't about me. Well, I was just being curious and you're allowed to be curious as a child. I was just being adventurous. I was just being loving. I just wanted this or that. And that was a normal state to be at that age. And that's why I'm very proactive about saying <laughs> age-appropriate bad behavior Because a child at the developmental stage has to test the boundaries. (laughs) Healthy curiosity
1: is important. And I'll I'll frame that in a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. You know, we're meant to be curious about the world. We're meant to be adventurous. We're meant to flex our physical muscles as well as our emotional and mental. It's normal and healthy to be curious. How we do that might need to be guided. <laughs> you
1: know, as so, a child I feel <laughs> I may have lacked some of those more healthily aligned, healthily if that's a word, fear genes, you know. Uh, we yeah. we resorted to some things of healthy exploration of gasoline and fire, you know. That <laughs> may not be a healthy frame of reference of curiosity and allowance. So, to put well, that in that perspective,
0: done, If that curiosity was done with an adult and, and taught, okay, yes. this is what happens, in like <laughs> a science experiment, not left your own devices to experiment. That's where <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, we, we need to be curious. Children need to be exploring the world that they're in. But a parent, I think, needs to be aware where the child's interests are and, and then use that as the, the stepping ground and go, you want to know about it? Let's learn about that. <laughs> you know, and being interactive in a guiding way and not an um, oppressional way. Yes. And that's the balance. And we don't get it right. You know, we screw up our kids. Every child's fucked up. Let's be honest about that. You know, <laughs> We all grow up with levels of crazy thinking and inappropriate reactions. Everyone is screwed up to an extent.
1: <laughs> and it's up to us as
0: adults to unscrew ourselves and to find a healthier way of being adults.
1: Hopefully, we're yeah. not digging that screw in deeper. <laughs> I think we're gonna you know? kind of look at drawing our line today. I feel like we've went down a great path. We may be venturing yeah. into a two-parter today. You know, I think I, so. I was gonna tip my hat a little bit into some of the polyvagal theory, but I think we'll just Ugh. throw the word out there today.
0: Yeah, yeah. we'll come. Another back. way and method
1: <laughs> in practice. Yeah modality of also addressing some of these childhood security issues, childhood attachment issues.
0: Maybe an easy one to touch base on it. as we summarize is mindfulness. Yes. You know, just be coming back to the present. It's one of the simplistic ones, but it's also some of the most challenging ones to be mindful to coming back to the now, to have that awareness. What am I feeling? What am I hearing about myself? What am I seeing about myself? And how accurate is that? Is it me or is it someone else? Very powerful, simplistic, but so complex at the same time.
1: I'm feeling like we've had a great conversation today.
0: <laughs> I great. Where yes, can our can listeners
1: <laughs> reach out to you, Leah, and learn a little bit more, not only about your personal development and personal coaching practice, but also to connect a little bit maybe to discover more about secure and insecure attachment styles.
0: Oh, okay. So most global website is my name. So Leah Marshall dash dot com. Okay. Marshall's my maiden name. So I'll give you the link and you can just post that up But Leah Marshall dash dot com. That gives you all the links to the various things that I do. The podcast, the books, the, the workshops, the online courses, uh, my blog, which this year I'm actually doing a month theme. On different aspects. So last month was all about I choose. This month's about aspects of love. The next month, I've got no idea what it's going to be yet. But well, it'll come to me when it's the right timing. And just exploring the shadow aspect of those things mm-hmm. instead of just always being proactive and saying, or oh, you know, just do this, just do that. It's like having understanding of why there's a shadow part of love. For instance, <laughs> why do we have the shadow part of choosing? What makes up a choice even? So that's that. And, um, yeah, there's just so many different parts. But the journal actually asks these questions every single day. So I have a journal book that you can purchase, 90 days of self-reflection with coping strategies built in that I teach because in the moment intervention strategies to keep the person on target without going down the spiral. And, of course, you know, one-on-one therapy is possible too. if Depending on where a person's at and what they need. So very multidimensional.
1: Such an essential practice, such a simple practice to connect with yourself and grow.
0: Absolutely.
1: I want to thank you. This truly has been such a fun and engaging conversation. And I feel like we could have went on for several hours. I would (laughs) love (laughs) to invite you back sometime. You're always welcome to drop in with us and share some more of this wonderful insight. Namaste. The light in me acknowledges the light in you, Leah. Thank you so much.
0: Pleasure. I'm so grateful for you. I loved it as well. Thank
1: you. Let's do it again soon. We've said it before. Your relationship with yourself sets the tone for every other relationship you have. For any relationship to be successful, there needs to be these key elements. Communication, love, appreciation, and understanding. This happens as we learn to appreciate our similarities while deeply respecting our differences. Einstein, in all his brilliance, tells us, our separation from each other is an optical illusion of consciousness. We're all interconnected, interwoven. It is through our attachment styles we learn to translate this interaction, forming more effective engagements and relationships with each other. Leah and I have shared how our attachment styles help us to develop a deeper sense of self-awareness, allowing us to understand the influence of our own behavioral patterns as we journey throughout life. At times, we find ourselves tangled up in the web of our stories, the limiting beliefs, the fears, and folly we experience along the way. We hope this conversation serves as a guide for effectively understanding both yourself and others. Leveraging our attachment styles can become a productive tool in disentangling that story. As always, if you found value and meaning in today's show, share it on social media by tagging us at The Light Inside Podcast, or send it to a friend or loved one, you feel might benefit from today's message. We're grateful for you, our valued listening community, and we truly appreciate your interactions as a key source of energy guiding our ship. Joining us on our next episode is author and inspirational speaker, Lindsay Jewell. Her latest release, Cycles of the Sevens, My Soul's Journey, details how she has risen from the hellish experiences, resulting from multiple incidents of mental and physical abuse, childhood trauma and addiction. Tune in next week on The Light Inside.